Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 48 through 52. Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 52. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. By it, we know you. By it, we know ourselves. By it, we know your will and what we need to believe or what we need to do. Lord, help us to see your grace today. We pray that you would give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was about a year-old Christian, so this would have been 1991, uh, I was a year-old Christian, and one of my pastors, I went to a, a church, a very kind-hearted church, very good people. Uh, one of the pastors came up to me, and he called me a name. He was very concerned. He was very concerned that I was a Calvinist. That's what he said. He goes, he goes listen, um, I'm really concerned that you are a Calvinist. And I had no idea. I'm a year-old Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. I hadn't been reading books yet. I'd just been reading the Bible. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. But I'm definitely not whatever that is. Because obviously, you don't like it. And we're cool. So I'm not that thing. So I remember thinking, like, well, no, it's not, it's not what it is. And he's like, no, no, I heard you. I, heard, cause I, I, I hear you. I hear you talking in the hallways. I hear you talking you know, in Sunday school. You're saying things like, you know, that God chose us be, before the foundations of the earth to be holy. And I said, in blameless spirit, that's, that's, I'm just, that's Ephesians. I don't, I don't know what to say. What do, you mean, what do you mean by Calvinism? He's like, no, you believe in this doctrine of, of election. Like, and this is the thing that was really sticking with him, you know. He said that, uh, that you know, you, you say things like, we've been predestined. Like, yeah, that's, and everything that he told me, I was really, I didn't have any understanding of what he was saying. I was just reading my Bible and saying what Scripture said, and uh, to the best of my, my ability at the time. And I was really confused and really upset that he was calling me this, this bad word. <laughs> and, and, and listen, just because I didn't have church background Let's clear something up. Just because you don't have church background with bad theology being taught to you doesn't mean you have an advantage necessarily when reading scripture because you might not have any background of Christians teaching you weird things that are wrong, but your own brain will come up with them all on their own. You will be your own bad teacher if you make yourself the pope or the authority in your life. So just, I wasn't, just wanted to make, to make sure, like, I had some nutty ideas along the way. But he was calling me a Calvinist, and I didn't know what this was, so I began to, you know, talk to some Christians around me, and I began to read books, and it turns out I was a Calvinist, like I actually was. Um, but I, I wasn't necessarily what, what this guy was saying, because when people say something like that, there oftentimes is this, you know, there's this... Uh, there's this caricature that's painted, like, oh, well, you know, you believe in this doctrine, right, whatever this is. In this case, it was a doctrine of election. Therefore, you must not like telling people about Jesus. And then they would give me the argument. So he was right, sort of, about what I was. And this is a controversial doctrine for some people. Some people are really uncomfortable with this doctrine. You may be uncomfortable today. 
I'm not going to apologize for that. The word makes us uncomfortable. We do not get to build a bear our theology and just pick and choose the, the attributes of God and the, and the works of God and the, and the truths of God and create what we like. We have to receive what has been given. And sometimes the truths for me, sometimes the truths are awkward, if not uncomfortable. So the doctrine of election is a truth taught in Scripture. We have to have the best understanding that we can of it. But here's the principle that I think we can see clearly in this passage is what I want us to walk away with. The principle is this. The doctrine of election empowers our evangelism. It does the exact opposite of what so many Christians think happens when you embrace this doctrine. And they've got some reasons for thinking it, but the, the doctrine of election, we'll explain what it is. The doctrine of election actually empowers our evangelism. It motivates mission is what it does. So you look at our passage. First, we're going to talk about the, the evangelism that was happening and then the opposition that the evangelists, that the apostles were receiving in verses 48 through 50. All right, evangelism and opposition. We're going to talk about resolution and joy in verse 51. And then at the end, I want us to talk about election and evangelism in terms of its doctrine and its importance. So evangelism and opposition, we start in verse 48. What does it say? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There's a lot going on here. Uh, here we see good news for the lost, right? Good news. Great news, the kind of news that you sing about, good news for the lost, right? Because it says the Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing. The Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews. These are people that were not raised in a Jewish culture. They were not raised uh, going to synagogue or going to the temple. This was not a part of their lives. They had various other gods or, or deities that they would believe in or worship or not, but they were not Jewish. They didn't have the scripture. They didn't understand the covenants and the promises that God gave to Israel. So these non-Jews were hearing what? This is when they heard this, the, the Gentiles were rejoicing and glorifying God. What were they hearing? If we back up to verses 46 and 47, we know exactly what they're responding to. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, the Jews, first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what they're responding to, right? in principle form. They are rejoicing. They are excited because they are hearing this good news that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for all kinds of people. It's for sinners. And that's everybody. And so this is celebration time for them. They, they understand that this is significant that a holy and just God would look upon sinful and rebellious creatures and say, I love you. I'm going to redeem you. It's almost Christmas time. Advent actually begins next week. So uh, buckle up. I know that feels early, but that's when Advent starts. And, uh, but, if, but if you know the Christmas story, you know the story of the shepherds. And the, so the shepherds are out in, in the field and Christ has been born. And there is this announcement made by the angels to shepherds. Shepherds were considered unclean, generally considered immoral, untrustworthy. These were not just low status people, these were no status people in the culture of the day. And uh, what does it say in Luke 2, 10? The angel says to them, right, of all people that the announcement could be made, it's made to shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And if he's telling this, if the angels are telling this to the shepherds, then they really know this is for all the people because you're telling us. 
And we are what people would consider the scum of the earth, right? We are just no, no good, not, desirous, not, not, not desirable at all. So the Gentiles are responding to this good news. By the way, look, can we just take note? I don't know if I have time to fit all this stuff in, but I'm going to try. Let's just take note. Like uh, in their evangelism, they're not just saying, you're a sinner, you're an idiot, you need to repent, you need to change your ways, you're doing the wrong thing, you're for the wrong thing, you're voting for the wrong people. They're not just doing that. They are clearly saying you need to repent of your sin, right? But there is never this sense of you need to repent of your sin and make yourself better. You need to be better or do better. The point is you need to repent of your sin and look to Jesus Christ who alone saves. They are offering good news of great joy. That's evangelism. It's not just shaming people. You can't shame people into the kingdom. You have to preach God's law, which is why Christ died, right? Our sins will condemn us, but God will justify us through Jesus. So there's good news being presented. Okay. And what do they do? These Gentiles are hearing these Jews talk about Jesus, right? And they wind up believing. But note what it says. Note how it says it in verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Appointed to eternal life. Now, we're not going to get into it right now. We're going to wait till the end. But just keep in mind the order of what's said here. It does not say, and as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. It doesn't say that. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, past tense, as many had been appointed to this, they are the ones who believed. So hold on to that. We're going to come back to it when we have some time to focus on it uh, in a bit of a longer form here in just just a few minutes, probably longer than that. But anyways, we'll get to it. So this good news, right, the evangelism that is happening, uh, this good news begins to spread. The ministry of the word is spreading. In verse 49, it says, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So the word of the Lord, that means the proclamation, the sharing, the testimony of the word of God, most specifically the gospel of God. This is going everywhere. Why? Why is this spreading? Now, the the simple answer is because God's in it and God's doing it. And that's true. Absolutely true. 100% true. God is spreading the word. But but, but how? Why? How does the word spread in general? Well, in general, we can say there are three things that are going to happen. If the word of God is going to spread throughout any city, any region, any company, right? Anywhere the word of God is going to spread, uh, three things are really likely to happen. Number one, we will share it. We are going to share the word. This is a critical step. This is a necessary step. The word of God will not spread without step one. We, the people of God, disciples, will share the gospel, share the word. Number two, people will believe the word. When people believe the word, what happens? We talked about this last week. There is a ripple effect. There is testimony. There is an echo. There is, maybe better, a chorus, right? There is a chorus that surrounds the conversion of some people, right? And that chorus is made up of unbelievers and believers because they're all talking about it. They're all kind of speaking about it. Did you hear? Did you see? Can you believe it? What's going on? I just, my best friend is now a weirdo. he, He thinks totally different. He acts totally different. He lives for different purposes now. So we will share it. They will believe it, and then that third step is that other people will talk about it. That's the course. Other people will talk about it. People, people will, listen, people will take up the cause for you even though they're not for it because they, they can't help but talk about, did you hear, did you see? The, the people that I've seen converted uh, later in life, they, I, I love hearing the people around them talk about the change, not because 
the transformation is the most exciting part, but because the people around them wind up talking about what happened in their lives. They're inadvertently giving testimony to the work of God, even people that do not believe. So the good news is spreading easily. It's spreading quickly. And so let's just note this, right? We share it. They believe it. People talk about it. That's how the word of God really begins to spread. Uh, If we miss step one, if we stop doing step one, then it doesn't happen. Because God doesn't send angels preaching the gospel into every city. He has sent us to do that. That's our part All right, well, if we know if we're going to practice evangelism as the disciples or the the apostles are doing this, they faced and we will face opposition. Good news is here opposed intensely in verse 50. It says, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So, okay, the Jewish leaders, right, many of the Jewish leaders uh, at the time in the city are upset, and they want to see these missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, put away, right? They're, 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 they're upset. And we know that there's a sense of jealousy here among these Jewish leaders, and we can just go back up to verse 45. We covered this last week, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So the Jewish leaders of the day were were jealous because all of these Gentile now, like there's already been a a response from many of the Jewish people, but the Gentile population is beginning to respond en masse to the gospel presentations, to the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, and they don't like it. Why don't they like it? Why are they jealous? Why are they hostile? Why are they so angry? Well, in one sense, we know it's because there's a sense of a loss of influence, right? Right? Because uh, in any synagogue in any city is going to have a mix of Jew and Gentile populations, at least at, at some level. Some of them were very diverse, some of them were less so. But here they see these two Jewish men preaching a gospel that they don't fully understand, and they see people going with it, not joining the synagogue, not joining their understanding of God, but instead ultimately moving away from it into something called Grace. So there's a loss of influence. It's probably why these Jewish leaders are, um, are jealous or hostile. But there's also, there's also a sense in which, and you've probably seen this in your life, people will sometimes become hostile to things that they're afraid of, right? And it's, and it's not that they're afraid of, like, that it's going to tear their life apart necessarily. They don't understand something. Like, if we don't understand something, we're oftentimes suspicious. We can be standoffish or we can be fearful of something. Because it's big, it's bigger than us, it's growing, it's expanding, we're not really sure, sure uh, what, to, what to do with it. And we even see Christians do this when God is at work throughout church history. When God is bringing about a revival and tons of people are getting converted at a, in, a, in a short period of time and Christians are being awakened from spiritual slumber and laziness and things begin to change. Every time that happens, there's always a group of Christians who do not like they don't like it. They're like, well, I don't know what to do about it. this. is all weird. And not only is this weird, not only is this weird and uncomfortable, some crazy things are happening too, right? And because, yeah, sometimes, listen, when God does big things, sometimes people do stupid things, right? Because you just get, sometimes you ever get so excited, you say something stupid, and then you feel stupid for saying the stupid thing, all right? Imagine that God is doing something really huge in your life, and you are being revived, and you're seeing people in mass be converted. You know, you might start barking like a dog, That's not of God. That's of you. 
But historically, we've seen this. Like in the Great Awakening, people would have fainting fits. They'd get what's called the jerks, which you would think is a condition I have because of my personality, but it's an actual like, jerking condition, right? We've seen people like talk about being slain in the spirit. Anytime there's a big work of God, there are always these, these, these things that tend to mark it in one way or another that are not of God, but come with it. And people then are so afraid of what they don't understand, have not yet experienced, and then they see these things, these abuses or misuses, they want to reject the whole. So maybe that's a part of it too. They just don't understand what's happening, and so they're hostile to it because they feel threatened by it. So what do they do? These Jewish leaders stir up people. Not any people, they look for the influencers. Not like today's influencers on Instagram, like real influencers, people that can move the needle in culture, like people that have say, people that have power. And so I love, I love what's described here. Luke like gets into it. Uh, he says specifically, uh, they were inciting the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's bad. It's terrible what they're doing, but like it's smart, right? It's smart because he's like, no, no, no. First of all, uh, you know, we're not just going to go for the men. We're going to go for the women and the men. But in order to really move this and, and make this make this persecution, this they wouldn't call it that, but this they had this encouragement for these Christians to get the heck out of town. In order for this to happen, uh, we need to get people that can really influence. So uh, women of high standing, right? Specifically, these are devout women. These are women that are Gentiles, perhaps culturally, but have converted to Judaism and they have a high place of honor in the community. They are successful. They are well-known. They are devout. People listen to them when they speak. And so they stirred up these women. But okay, now, is that just because women are more emotional? Okay, listen, I hear preachers talk about this. Women are more emotional. Like, okay, well, I'm, I'm sure some women are. My wife's not. I'm way more emotional than my wife, okay? She's very German, and I'm very cartoony, I guess. I don't know what it is. She, she's, she's very stoic and serious, right? And, um, and I actually, I don't know, I, I, I talk and express uh, feelings quite a bit. So, uh, but no, it's because like, they went with the women because of their influence, right? And because they're going for influence, they look for certain men, right? So not all women, not all men, Influential women, influential men. And so what does it say? Oh, it's that they go after these, these men who, um, who were leading in the city. They go there because they know that by talking to them, they can stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And that is exactly what happens. They want to pressure these missionaries to leave, to stop changing things, to stop frustrating things, to stop contradicting their message. So in verse 51, we see this, this resolution, this, this persevering spirit to continue to do what they're called to do with joy. Look at verse 51. It says, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So they were driven out of town, but they shake off the dust from their feet and they move on, shaking off the dust. You guys know what that's a reference to, right? This was, this was a habit um, and even a saying, right? It was, it was, it was a saying that was common. Uh, Jesus makes it, makes it popular. He talks about it in Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 14. But people used to say it in a number of ways. In, in Matthew 10, 14, Jesus says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. In other words, move along. 
they're rejecting you, they're shutting you down. Like, okay, you kick the dust off your feet. Like your, your feet, you wear sandals, you, things are exposed. So you kick it off, you, you move on. Uh, this was an expression used by a lot of people in the day. But here the church is using it again uh, to, to encourage persevering, not giving up in evangelism. Listen, you're not giving up if you say, well, I can't talk to this person anymore because they just won't listen, they won't hear it, they're only rejecting me. For you to move on to another person doesn't mean you're giving up on them. It means you're giving up on the situation perhaps in that very moment where I can't continue, but you can continue to pray for people. Many people are converted long after you or somebody else has shared the gospel with them. But shaking off the dust means I'm not giving up on the mission. I'm not giving up on the calling. I'm going on, but I got to move on to the next people that God wants me to talk to. So they shake the dust off their feet and they are resolute. They're just moving on. You would think it would get discouraging after a while, thinking like, man, how many times do we have to get rejected and shut down and thrown in jail? But it keeps happening and they keep persevering. Why are they so resolute? Why? I'll give you two basic reasons. One is fruitfulness. They're seeing fruitfulness. When you see fruit in your efforts, what does that do? It, get excited. You're like, oh, I'm going to double down on this. I, I, when I, it's working, right? People are believing. People are being converted. It is harder when you aren't seeing much fruit to persevere, but they're seeing lots of fruit. So they're seeing people converted. Not as many Jews as they were hoping because they are Jewish people. They want to see their brothers and sisters converted. They're moving on to the Gentiles. They're seeing mass numbers there. And so they're going to continue because of that. But fruitfulness isn't always consistent, right? Sometimes you go through seasons where there is very little fruit, especially evangelistically, and they still keep going. Why? Well, it's because it's not just fruitfulness. It's also calling. The person who knows what they are called to do by God is much more likely to continue to do that thing when everyone else in the world tells them to stop. If everyone is telling you you're terrible at this, you need to stop doing this, you're, you're, you're doing damage, but if you know God has called me to do this, who's going to carry more sway in your life? Whose voice are you going to take more seriously? Who are you going to listen to? Understanding that you've been called by God to do something is instrumental in enabling us to persevere when everybody else might be telling us to shut it down or stop talking. And so the result of this is joy, right? I mean, that's, that's what it says. It says that they, um, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit in verse 52. Filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the result of the fruitfulness and the calling. Fruitfulness in the calling uh, is, is, is exciting, it's brilliant, it's life-changing, not just for them, but for everybody who's believing. And so and in the midst of persecution, they're having joy, they're being filled with the Spirit. I mean, Jesus said this would happen in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter kind, all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is what's happening, right? This is what's happening in our passage. The disciples are preaching the gospel. They're seeing fruit. They're experiencing persecution. But they are persevering in joy. And I believe that part of what really empowered uh, Paul in his evangelism is his understanding of the doctrine of election. I mean, Luke thinks of it enough to actually spell it out in this passage, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So let me, let me just touch on the doctrine of election uh, so that we have a, a, some clarity on it. I know a lot of you are going to be like, yeah, I got it, good. And others of you might be struggling with exactly what to do. So the doctrine of election is simply God's plan 
to save sinners, right? Now, that's too vague to be a sufficient definition, but we'll start with that. God's plan to save sinners. A plan means this is something that's been laid out in advance. So before the foundation of the earth, before creation, God had a plan to save sinners, right? And that's not just the, the plan to save sinners in general. It was specific. It was, it was a, not just a method, right? But it actually had a specific end goal. God's predetermined plan to save sinners wasn't just a general strategy. It was a rescue mission for specific people. God predetermined that he would save certain people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of election is that God, before creation, has chosen some people for eternal life and has passed over others. Now, I know that for some of you, that is going to actually be a frustrating thing to consider. It's okay. It's okay for you to get frustrated when you're encountering things in Scripture or when you're just listening to me try to explain them. That's okay. But let's not give up on what Scripture says. Let's just kind of read through it. Let's persevere through it together and try to come to a, our best understanding of what it means when the Bible talks about election or predestination because those words are there. In the Old Testament, you see this concept of election happening quite a bit. God choosing, right? That's what we mean by election. God has chosen some. And you can't really read the Old Testament. Uh, you can't read the history of Israel without coming face to face with the reality that God has a tendency to choose. He has the privilege. He has the right to choose people that he wants. How many people were on the earth at the face of, uh, on the face of the earth at the time of Abraham? I don't know. But I know it was a lot. And uh, who did God choose? He chose one person. He chose Abraham. He could have chosen everybody in some way or another, but he chooses Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel and to be the one through whom the Messiah would come. He chose Abraham. He could have chosen another person, but he chose Abraham. He has the right to do that. He is God. He chose Abraham. He chose Isaac, not Ishmael. If you know the story, we don't have time to get into it. He chose Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. God has the right to choose the person that he will rescue or the, people, or the person that he will use. God does this throughout the Old Testament. He's constantly showing his hand, his hand of sovereign, righteous, generous choice. God chooses some. God does not choose everybody. God chooses some and not others. When you get to the New Testament, you start to read passages like Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I'm just going to read a few verses here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. It's one of the blessings, right? Even as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. His will. Not the purpose of my will. This is important for us to begin to grasp, right? That uh, as many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God who are born not according to the will of man, but according to the power of God. 
Right? We're talking about a God who chooses, and as uncomfortable as this may make us on the front end, we have to deal with it. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. I remember this is one of those verses that had such a huge impact on me as a young Christian because I couldn't help but see what it, it seems to say very clearly to me. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There were some who were appointed to eternal life. What happened to them in this moment, at this particular point in time when they were hearing the gospel message? What happened to them? They believed. Why did they believe? They had been appointed to eternal life. It's like the Father chose those individuals, and not only did he choose them to be saved, he chose when they would be saved, and the Holy Spirit converts them, actually brings grace to them. He effectually changes their hearts. These are the ones for whom Christ died. It's like the, the Father planned the redemption, the, 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 the Son accomplished redemption, and the Holy Spirit applied the redemption. See, what God did in election, right, in predestination, in choosing some to be saved, in choosing some to believe, what God did in eternity past is who we are. It's why we're called the elect throughout Scripture again and again. In Colossians chapter 3, Verse 12, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and so forth. Even before addressing us in terms of what we're supposed to do, we're given this, this title, the chosen ones. You ever see those families? There's like uh, families, uh, there's like the golden child. The golden child uh, is oftentimes, not always, and if you're the golden child, I don't feel bad for you. You have it pretty sweet. The golden child is, um, is, the, is the one who seems to excel, seems to do well, and certainly is seen in a favorable light by mom and dad. Um, the golden child, right? They are oftentimes that way because of how they interact, how they're wired, how they work. It's, they're not arbitrarily just sort of chosen to be the golden child. There's something in them that sets them apart oftentimes. But this is different. God choosing is different. God doesn't choose us because we're lovely or pretty, because we're faithful. God doesn't choose us because we're going to have the best personalities. God doesn't choose us because he saw that at one point we would believe. God shows us, according to his own will, that we would be redeemed and become a people for his own possession. This is different. Now, I know some of you are thinking like, okay, well, how fair is this? God chooses some, so he chooses, okay, I'm, the, I'm up here talking. So God chose Joe, but he didn't choose somebody else? That doesn't seem fair. It seems unfair. Why wouldn't God choose both people or all people? And listen, regardless of whether or not you believe in the doctrine of election, as I'm going to present it today, uh, every Christian is struck with the same problem. If God can save everybody, why doesn't he save everybody? Why doesn't he actually do it? So here we are with the doctrine of election. Is this fair? Okay, is it fair for God to choose some to be saved and others not to be saved? Is it fair? There are two answers to this question. Number one, no, it's not fair. It's called grace. It's not fair. It's more than fair. It's better than fair. I don't want fair. I mean, at least in the sense of justice. I don't want the justice of God for my sins. I want the grace of God for my sins. And that's what I want everybody to experience. That's why I tell everybody that I can, when I'm willing to do so, if I'm being honest, about the gospel, about Jesus. So, uh, no, it's not fair. It's better than fair. In Romans chapter 9, listen to Romans 9, 14 through 16. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. This is in the context of talking about this very doctrine, the sovereignty of God in salvation, the doctrine of election. God has the right to do what he wants, and what he is actually doing is he's extending grace to people that don't deserve it. Listen, if God didn't save anybody, that would be fair. If God didn't choose anybody, that would be fair. But what he does is he extends grace and kindness to a number so great that none of us can count it. The second thing I would say is, is is this fair? This doesn't seem fair. The second answer is be careful. Be careful. It's okay to ask questions. Always take your questions to God. That's totally fine. But in Romans 9, 19, just listen. You will then say to me, Paul says, still in this conversation, you will then say to me, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call her beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. This simply doesn't happen apart from the doctrine of election. We will not believe unless the Spirit changes our hearts. And the Spirit will not change our hearts unless Christ has died to take away the corruption of our hearts. And Christ's death on the cross uh, for our sins and for our guilt and for our ultimate redemption was sent by the Father on behalf of those that he has chosen. In the end, we get either justice or mercy. That's the end. Everybody will get justice or mercy. Everybody will get what is fair, what they've earned, which is justice before the face of God, or they will get grace, what they do not deserve, because God has kindly forgiven their debt. Now, that is a very short explanation and inadequate, I'll be honest, definition or explanation of the doctrine of election. Uh, We've covered it here a number of times at Redeemer, and as it comes up in Scripture, we talk about it. But what I wanted to do was at least revisit this doctrine since it's mentioned here and then give you the hope of the doctrine of election. Because there are a lot of people who see this doctrine and they think like, okay, if you believe that God has chosen some to be saved and they will be saved and you can't interfere with that, then we don't need to tell people about Jesus. And therefore, since you believe in that, you must not tell people about Jesus. You probably are discouraged to share the gospel. And the truth is, is that the doctrine of election empowers our evangelism. Why do we share the gospel? Number one, God tells us to. I don't need any complicated philosophical answer beyond that personally. It doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but I know that I'm supposed to do it at least, right? We preach the gospel because God says go, because Jesus says go. Go into the world. As you're going, make disciples. Preach the gospel to every living creature. Be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's commanded. Not only is it commanded, secondly, we preach the gospel because that is what God uses to convert. He uses the preaching of the gospel. Uh, Romans 10, 
right? Romans 10, we were just in Romans 9. Uh, Romans 10, how, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching the gospel? The same Paul that lays out the doctrine of election so clearly in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Romans also says the means by which God calls the elect forth, as we've seen in Acts, is through the preaching of the word, through the ministry of the word. So it's commanded by God. Uh, the preaching of the gospel is used by God and, and, the, and the, the, the joy, the hope, the confidence is, since this is all grace, it's all God's work, it means we can't screw it up. We can't fail. If we are simply faithful to preach the gospel, to tell every single person that we possibly can about Jesus, if we just tell people the truth about Jesus, God can use that to bring forth people by his word, to cause them to be born again. We can't fail if we are just faithful. Because our, listen, our best presentations of the gospel are going to be messy, sloppy. At times we're going to get things wrong. God can overcome all of that. He takes the word that we share to convert sinners. The doctrine of election actually empowers evangelism. This is not a strange or obscure doctrine. This is not, it, just because, you know, you may not be familiar with it or maybe certain churches are unfamiliar with it and it may seem strange because it's, it's not something that we've heard a lot about, that doesn't make it strange. This particular doctrine, the doctrine of predestination or election, and we've actually done a sermon series, a short series on the doctrines of grace, and we cover this doctrine in particular. This doctrine has been believed and held by Christians from the beginning. I mean, we can go all the way back to St. Augustine. St. Augustine is one who, who wrote about this at length. We've got Augustine, you've got people like, well, Martin Luther and John Calvin, right? So you've got the, the, the beginning of Lutheranism and the beginning of Presbyterianism right there. Both of them clearly articulated and wrote at length about this particular doctrine whenever it was needed. Uh, John Owen, the whole Puritan movement, uh, the whole particular Baptist movement coming out of the Puritan movement. You've got guys like Jonathan Edwards, you've maybe heard his name, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon, this great Baptist preacher from London. He's an evangelist. Uh, we've got R.C. Sproul from Modern Figures, right, who recently passed away, or guys like John Piper. They all believe these doctrines. You've got missionaries, famous missionaries and evangelists, right, from, from John Bunyan to Adoniram Judson to, to William Carey, on and on the list goes. People that believe this doctrine, it forces them, it compels them to share the gospel with boldness because they know they can't fail if they're just faithful. Personally, the doctrine of election... It, um, it shows God's love and mercy. And so you may be wondering, like, well, if God chooses before the foundation of the earth, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? How can I know if, how can I have assurance? And the, the answer is simple, because I think we get way into our, too into our heads on this. Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope before God? Do you believe I'm not asking, do you believe perfectly? I'm not asking, do you have the, 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 the faith of the, of the best and most pious theologian? I'm asking, do you believe, do you trust that Jesus is the one who takes away your sin and guilt and makes you acceptable before the face of God? If you believe, then you should know, you should have assurance that you are God's and that he is yours, that you are justified, that you are adopted, that you are chosen. The doctrine of election should strengthen our evangelism, but it should also strengthen our assurance because it is simply 
one of the ways in which we see God's grace, that we are saved by what he does, not by any attempts on our own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word, even a a passage like this where there's a lot to talk about and um, we're dealing with doctrines that are big and sometimes heavy. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be teachable. Lord, if we are wrong, Lord, if I'm wrong anywhere, we want to know. And so we we, we trust that that by your spirit, through your word, and through the the wisdom of your people, Lord, we we will change wherever we need to change, that we will be excited about your truth, Lord, that we will learn to embrace what is, what is true. Lord, in all of this, what we want more than anything is for you to be glorified through the redemption of sinners like us. And not just us, but those that we're praying for and seeking to reach as well. In Jesus' name, amen.